MSW Media. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. Today, a former FBI counterintelligence official has been arrested for his ties to Oleg Deripaska. Four men have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy in the second Oath Keepers trial. The guy with his feet up in Pelosi's office on January 6th has been convicted on all charges. A New Mexico judge has ordered Solomon Pena jailed until trial. And the disparate investigation into the SCOTUS Dobbs leak. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being with me for a second day in a row going solo with no Dana, only Zool. A huge day for justice and the Department of Justice and a lot of injustice going on over at the Supreme Court. I'm going to talk about all of it. And uh, I wanted to thank everyone for listening to a new episode of Jack, which came out a couple of days ago. Uh, I'm glad I've got a lot of messages saying, you know, how much people are enjoying that podcast. So if you haven't listened to Jack yet, you can do so by searching for it wherever you get your podcasts. Dana will be back tomorrow. I think that's all that's going on today. So why don't we just jump in and hit the hot notes? Hot notes. All right. From the Washington Post, four members of the far right Oath Keepers group were convicted of seditious conspiracy Monday, joining founder Stuart Rhodes in being found guilty by a jury of plotting to keep President Donald Trump in power by the use of force. Seditious conspiracy charges are rarely used and even more rarely successful, making the verdict a significant victory for the Justice Department. Of the nearly 1,000 people charged with committing crimes at the Capitol, only 14 were charged with seditious conspiracy, identified by the Justice Department as not just participants in a violent mob, but leaders using brutality to further a political plot. In November, the same prosecution team failed to convict three associates of the Oath Keepers of the crime, but did convict two of them. At Rhodes's trial, only he and Florida Oath Keepers leader Kelly Meggs were found guilty of conspiring to commit sedition, while three associates were convicted of less politically loaded felonies that did not require plans to use force. The Oath Keepers' verdict, which came after the jury deliberated for about 13 hours, comes as five members of the Proud Boys face trial down the hall on seditious conspiracy charges. Joseph Hackett, Roberto Menuda, David Marshall, and Edward Vallejo were also convicted Monday of obstructing lawmakers and Congress generally and conspiring to do the same. That's 1512C2 and conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding and conspiracy to destroy government property. Hackett was convicted of destroying evidence by deleting it from his devices, and Minuta and Marshall are acquitted on that charge. Hackett and Marshall were acquitted of responsibility for damaging the Capitol's historic Columbus doors. The Oath Keepers were described by federal prosecutors as armed and dangerous traitors, and by their attorneys as hapless has-beens who stumbled into chaos. Quote, they claimed to wrap themselves in the Constitution, but they trampled it. That was from Prosecutor Jeffrey Nestler in closing arguments. They ignored the will of the people, but had the audacity to claim to be oath keepers. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta allowed all four men to await sentencing on 24-hour house arrest, so he is not uh, detaining them pending sentencing noting that none of them had prior criminal histories or issues on pretrial release. Federal prosecutors alleged more emphatically 
than in the previous trial that the Oath Keepers came close to committing deadly violence. Rhodes expressed regret after January 6th about not having rifles that day. Assistant U.S. Attorney Luis Manzo told jurors that both Menuda and Vallejo might have killed lawmakers had they not been deterred by the Capitol Police on January 6th and the National Guard the day after. One more seditious conspiracy trial left, like I said. That's the Proud Boys trial. It's currently underway, and I will keep you posted on that verdict when it comes in. Another January 6th news, an Arkansas man who entered the Capitol with rioters on January 6th was photographed lounging at the desk of then-House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's office suite, was convicted Monday on all eight charges. That's Richard Barnett, Bigo or Bigo, who acknowledged leaving a vulgar written message for Pelosi before departing the suite with a purloined envelope bearing the California Democrats' digital signature, sat impassively as a jury in the U.S. District Court in D.C. delivered its verdict. After eight days of testimony and legal arguments in in Barnett's trial, the panel began deliberating Monday morning and reached guilty findings on all eight counts against him, including four felonies, in less than two hours. As for potential prison time, the most serious charge, obstructing an official proceeding, which, as we know, 18 U.S. Code 1512C2, I said to keep an eye on that one, carries a maximum penalty of 20 years behind bars. In addition to obstructing the official proceeding, Barnett was convicted of two felonies related to carrying a dangerous weapon during the attack on the Capitol and a felony charge of civil disorder. The four misdemeanors he was convicted of include theft of government property, meaning that empty envelope he took from Pelosi's office. His, by the way, his deadly weapon was that walking stick that he had that had a stun gun in it. And the former head of the FBI's counterintelligence division in the New York field office has been indicted in two federal jurisdictions on charges related to improper foreign ties, including allegedly violating U.S. sanctions on Russians by trying to get billionaire Oleg Deripaska removed from the OFEC sanctions list. That's according to the Justice Department. This is Charles McGonigal. I talked about him a little over a year ago when Forensic News' Scott Studman put out a story that he had seen McGonigal's name on some business paperwork with Deripaska. And McGonigal, who has been retired from the FBI since 2018, has been indicted in federal court in Manhattan on money laundering, violating sanctions, and other charges in connection to his alleged ties to Deripaska, including a 1001 charge. As we know, Deripaska is an ally of Putin. In his role at the FBI, McGonigal had been tasked with investigating Deripaska, whose own indictment for sanctions violations was just unsealed this past September. Separately, McGonigal was accused in a nine-count indictment in federal court in Washington of hiding his receipt of $225,000 from a former Albanian intelligence agent living in New Jersey. He was also accused of hiding foreign travel and contacts with senior leaders in countries including Albania, Kosovo, Bosnia, uh, where the former Albanian agent had business interests. Now, prosecutors allege that from at least August 2017 and beyond his retirement from the FBI, McGonigal failed to disclose to the FBI his relationship with the former Albanian security official, described as Person A in charging papers. McGonigal's alleged involvement with Deripaska may impact a significant push by the DOJ to hit wealthy Russians with economic sanctions for conducting business in the U.S., an effort that accelerated last year with Putin's invasion of Ukraine. This is something that Merrick Garland promised to do. The twin indictments are also a black eye for the FBI, alleging that one of their most senior and trusted intelligence officials was taking secret cash payments and undermining the Bureau's overall intelligence gathering mission. Current and former U.S. officials who know and have worked with McGonagall 
said they are shocked by these charges. As an FBI agent at his level, McGonagall had knowledge of an extraordinary amount of sensitive information, potentially including investigations of foreign spies or U.S. citizens suspected of working on behalf of foreign governments. And this is what people told the Times on the condition of anonymity because of the sensitivity of the work that McGonagall did. One former official said McGonagall had worked with the CIA on counterintelligence matters. According to the New York indictment, a law firm retained by McGonagall to work as a consultant and investigator on the effort to get Deripaska removed from the sanctions list. He was listed as a consultant and arranged for a $25,000 monthly payment to be sent to an account controlled by another person, a government interpreter who was a former Russian diplomat. The interpreter, Sergei Shestakov, was also indicted. McGonagall faces a statutory max of 20 years in prison on the two D.C. counts of falsification of records and documents and up to five years in prison for each of the seven counts of concealing material facts or making false statements. The most serious charge in the New York indictment also carries a maximum possible sentence of 20 years in prison. And a failed Republican New Mexico State House candidate who is accused of masterminding shootings at Democratic officials' homes will remain in jail as he awaits trial. That's according to a judge ruling on Monday. Second Judicial District Court Judge David Murphy said Solomon Pena poses a threat to the targets of the shootings and their family members. He also pointed to Pena's history of felony convictions involving property crimes and then using stolen vehicles, mirroring the tactics police say were used in the shootings in December and early January. Prosecutor Natalie Lyons said Pena led a team that fired shots into the homes of elected officials, Democrats. An investigator said Pena provided the guns used in the shootings, suggested the use of stolen cars to avoid being identified, and was present at the fourth and final shooting. The detention hearing came a week after Pena, who lost a 2022 election for House District 14, was arrested by a SWAT team. Authorities say he hired and conspired with four men to shoot at the homes of two state legislators and two county commissioners since the election in what Albuquerque's mayor described as politically motivated attacks. No one was injured in the shootings, but a bullet flew through a child's bedroom while a child was inside. Pena faces a preliminary charge of felon in possession with a firearm and attempted aggravated battery with a deadly weapon, criminal solicitation, and four counts each of shooting at an occupied dwelling, shooting at or from a motor vehicle, and conspiracy. And that's according to the warrant. He has been held without bail since he was taken into custody, and now he will be held in pretrial detention. And from Jody Cantor at the Times, last spring and summer, employees of the Supreme Court were drawn into an investigation that turned into an uncomfortable awakening. As the court marshal's office looked into who had leaked the draft opinion, the Dobbs opinion, law clerks who had secured coveted purchases at the top of the judiciary scrambled for legal advice and navigated quandaries like whether to surrender their personal cell phones to investigators. The court family, quote-unquote, soon realized that its sloppy security might make it impossible to ever identify the culprit. Yeah, well, when you don't want to identify the culprit, it's easy not to. 82 people, in addition to the justices, had access to that draft opinion. Burn bags holding sensitive documents headed for destruction sat around for days. Internal doors swung open with numerical codes that were shared widely and went unchanged for months. Perhaps most painful, some employees found themselves questioning the integrity of the institution they'd pledged to serve. And that's according to interviews with almost two dozen current and former employees. 
former law clerks to and advisors to last year's clerkship class and others close to them who provided previously undisclosed details about the investigation. Inside the court, justices are treated with such day-to-day deference that junior aides assist them in putting on their black robes. As staff members were grilled, some grew concerned about the fairness of the inquiry, worried that the nine were not being questioned rigorously like everyone else. The investigation was an attempt by Chief Justice John Roberts to right the institution and its image after a grievous breach and slide in public trust. Conducting a stupid, half-assed investigation is not the way to do that. Uh, And instead, the Times writes, it may have lowered confidence inside the court and out. Yeah, you think? On Thursday, the court issued a 20-page report disclosing that the marshal's months-long search for the leaker had been fruitless and detailing embarrassing gaps in the internal policies and security. While noting that 97 workers had been formally interviewed, the report did not say whether the justices or their spouses had been. Public reaction was scathing, quote, not even a sentence explaining why they were or weren't questioned. That was Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist, a conservative magazine. A day later, the court was forced to issue a second statement saying the marshal had, in fact, talked with the justices, but on very different terms from the others at the institution. Lower-level employees had been formally interrogated, recorded, pressed to sign affidavits denying any involvement, and warned that they could lose their jobs if they failed to answer questions fully. In contrast, conversations with the justices had been a two-way iterative process, in quotes, uh, in which they asked as well as answered questions. So the justices got to ask questions of the marshal, Gail Curley. She had seen no need for them to sign affidavits. Hmm. Failing to fully scrutinize the justices, quote, just completely undermines the court's credibility. That's Mark Zayed, a lawyer who often handles government investigations. Quote, it sends a message of superiority that does not exist under the eyes of the law. Besides, justices have a long history of being the ultimate source of leaks, says Aaron Tang, a law professor and former clerk to Sotomayor. And he wrote that in an opinion essay in The Times. The chief had assigned the investigation to Ms. Curley, the marshal, whose best known task, her job, her one job is saying, oh, yes, oh, yes, oh, yes, as the justices enter the room. She was a respected former army lawyer, but her division had little of the investigative muscle of other government agencies. No subpoena power and staff only partly devoted to security. Others on her team dealt with court administrative tasks like staffing events and handling mail. In recent months, as the court has completed its report, new clerks have taken their places inside the chambers. Security is tightening. Further protocol changes are promised. And with the release of the report, a growing recognition has taken hold, some employees say. The best chance of understanding who leaked the most consequential decision in generations and what that person was trying to achieve is fading away. So, very one-sided investigation at the Supreme Court by Ms. Curley. And this is, I know that Justice Roberts was trying to write the court, but this is only making it worse. It's only going to make, it's only going to knock, I think, probably another four points off of their already abysmally low approval rating. So we'll see what happens, but seems like that might be the end of it. A lot of folks are asking why the DOJ doesn't get involved. This isn't a criminal matter. So at least not at the moment. (laughs) But um, 
Yeah, just absolutely disingenuous. No one is above the law, equal justice under the law, the Supreme Court, the nine, not required to sign affidavits. All right, everybody, we need some good news after that. So stick around. I'll be back on the other side with it. Stay with us. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, you want to give a shout out to a small business in your area that could use some help or just because you love it, maybe they don't need help. Maybe they're already doing awesome. You want to give a shout out to somebody that you really love and care about, your own personal hero. I want to hear about them. You want to give a shout out to an adoptable pet in your area. We'd love to hear about that too. You want to play What the Mutt with me where I badly try to guess what breeds are in your rescue dog? You can do that too. You can send anything into us at all by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. Quick correction about the location of the shooting that took place in California. It occurred at Monterey Park, not Monterey. Uh, This was in the show notes, but Park was left out of the podcast. Monterey Park is in Los Angeles County in the San Gabriel Valley. Just wanted to make that quick correction. First up, from Anonymous, Anonymous Attorney, pronoun she and her. Curious whether Attorney Alina Haba will be required to report this enormous sanction to each state where she's licensed to practice. I'm no fan of DJT, and Haba deserves every punishment coming for this fuckery. I don't recall how I found you, but I'm so very glad I did. Yours is the only non-murder crime podcast I'll listen to. (laughs) It is kind of a murder crime podcast, though, if you think about it. For pet tax, I give you our two rescue mutts, Tito and Louie, adopted separately, but the bestest of friends. Oh, hi, Tito and Louie. Adorable. A little fluffer and a little smoother. So cute. Thank you for that. Thank you for the kind words as well. And yeah, I, I'm wondering if she's going to have to report that those sanctions to every bar association she's affiliated with. We'll see. All right. From Dustin, no pronouns given. I wanted to tell you about my good boy. I bought a dog from my girlfriend's graduation. He was a Shih Tzu Bichon. Uh, but he reminded me of a Lhasa Opso pup that I had as a kid. My girlfriend couldn't decide on a name for him. She had narrowed it down to Simon or Winston. Well, being a huge Churchill fan, I said, let's go with Winston. So she chose Simon. (laughs) When she took him to the doggy salon, the stylist commented on what a well-behaved dog Simon was. She said it reminded her of this other dog that came in. It was a sad story in the family of this other dog that they didn't want him, but didn't know what to do with him. As my girlfriend told me about him, she revealed that he was a little Lhasa Apso, and his family named him Winston. I knew I had to adopt him. When my now wife and I got married, we had both Simon and Winston to fill our home with barks and playing. Simon passed at 12, but Winston lived to a ripe old age of 17. He passed in November, but I've never had a more lovable, cuddly dog than him. He always had to be near you, laying on your lap or at your feet, always with his tongue hanging right out of his mouth. He was such a good boy. Thank you for listening. His story is such an amazing one, and I just had to share it with someone. Dustin, that synchronicity is amazing. I don't know if you heard the story about the stray cat who was following me around while I was shaking treats trying to find my other cat. He is uh, just at this very moment waking up from surgery. Uh, He he was supposed to have a simple neuter, but apparently one of his trouble puffs couldn't be found. So they had to go looking for it. So he went under full anesthesia and he's waking up now and he's good. He's going to have a cone and some stitches Uh, for a while. He's probably going to be very confused and upset that he's not outside doing his outside cat thing, but I'm hoping he will be very comfy here at my house. 
Uh, I have not heard him purr yet. So that is my number one goal. I will keep you posted here in the good news. And look at this little baby. Thank you for this photo. Thank you, Dustin. What a great story. Next up, Palm Springs. He and him. Hi, Allison and Dana. Love, love, love you guys. And I've never missed an episode since the kitchen table days. Wow, that is quite a feat. Totally into the new podcast, Jack. And I love the smooth voice of Andy McBabe. (laughs) Don't we all? I'll pass that note along to him. Thought, oh, you know what? I'll just, I'll, I'll just tell him right now. Uh, by the way, uh, a Daily Beans listener wrote in and said they loved the smooth voice of Andy McBabe, and uh, I'll let you know what he says. Uh, and uh, I'll continue your story here. Thought you'd like to meet my little girl, Tootsie Lou. Such a loving, joyful pup and such a snuggler and healer. But she's a very diva-esque. She's very diva-esque to other dogs and thinks she's Miss Universe, little prima donna. I've only heard her bark maybe three times ever, and two of them were at that bitch Marcy, quote, unquote. (laughs) Here's Toots and her best friend Twiggy at Halloween as Joe and Blair from The Facts of Life. You can take the girl out of the Bronx, but you can't take the Bronx out of the girl. And Blair from The Facts of Life. Thank you for being shamazing. Love to you both. Okay. Yeah, I can see it. Joe and Blair. Toots. Tootsie. Or is it Tootsie? Because there was a Tootie on Facts of Life too, but this says Tootsie. Anyway, thank you, Palm Springs. I really appreciate it. Next up for Max pronouns, he and him. Hello, beans queens of the Leguminati. Longtime listener, second time submitter here. A very happy birthday to you, AG. Thank you for all you do. May you live long and prosper. I just did the hand thing. This time, my good news are from my mom or of my mom. Last year, she lived through a pancreatic cancer operation and subsequent chemo. Very traumatic, but luckily she's testing negative in all the right places. She is so badass and has started to work out again at 70. So I thought there's no excuse for me anymore. And thus, I've started doing regular back and abs routine. Feels so good. This is a picture of all my mom's grandkids as we got together over Christmas. As pod pet tax, I still don't have any pets myself. Instead, I send you this lovely picture of my good friend who lives in Tokyo with these cats. So such beautiful creatures. Thanks again for everything, AG and DG. You rock. Oh, look at everybody. Hi there. I love the bow ties, by the way. Very classy. Oh, hi, kitties. Hello. Thank you for sending that in. Is that you in Tokyo with the cats, Max? Or is that your friend in Tokyo with their cats? Anyway, thank you very much for that. Love it. Next up, colon cancer Chris. Pronouns he and him. Colon cancer Chris here. Just wanted to let the Leguminati know that my last visit to the oncologist came with the best news possible. After spending all of 2022 battling stage three rectal cancer, I am finally cancer-free. I would not have been able to get through all this without my loving partner, family, friends, and all the well wishes of my fellow listeners. Thank you to AG and DG for providing the laughs along with the news headlines. It really helped during both of my hospital stays. For pet tax, I'm attaching my favorite of my parents' six cats, the aforementioned in a previous submission, Ella, aka the Evil Queen, aka President Eisenmeauer. She's pictured indulging in two of her favorite activities, lying in her bed 
and plopping down in a chair just moments before a human is set to sit there. Oh, look at this chonk. Look at the belly. Oh, I want to pet that belly. I bet that's a soft belly. Hello, kitty. Chris, that's amazing. Cancer-free. Congratulations. Truly, truly wonderful. That's so great. And I know the whole, I know the entirety of the Leguminati is with you as well. Thank you for that good news. And if you have any good news, corrections, confessions, anything you want to send to us, Dana will be back with me tomorrow. But thank you for putting up with me solo for a couple of days. I really appreciate it. Um, I just have to get the news to you. I can't not, right? Uh, so um, Dana will be back tomorrow. And any any good news you want to send in, you can do it at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. You know what? Just send in, just send in a bunch of stuff to Dana with really hard to pronounce words um, and, uh, and, and just tell, you know, tell her how much you missed her and then like sprinkle a lot of hard to pronounce like townships and stuff in there. I think that would be a great way to welcome her back. All right. And you can do that at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. I will be back tomorrow with Dana. Until then, everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q and bring someone with you. I've been AG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media.